Good afternoon, Paul. Good afternoon. So today is Thursday, the 21st of May, 2020, and it is the Lunar Observance Day of the New Moon in the Buddhist calendar. So thank you again for uh, consenting to answer a few questions. The first one is once again pertaining to the current situation, now that governments are starting to open up a bit to allow more movement, to uh, allow people to get to work and move around a bit, people worry about a second wave of coronavirus or whether things will go smoothly. There's still more things to be concerned about. Would you be willing to address that? It's uh, important to recognize that the future is what we don't know. I mean, right now, in this very moment, sitting here, tomorrow is, is the unknown. You know, this is reality, the way it is. It doesn't mean I don't expect tomorrow to... to uh, to be like to be like it, I imagine. But the reality, what we're doing with Buddha Dhamma, is awakening to reality, to the way things actually are, not the way we imagine them or the way we've been programmed and conditioned to believe. So you know, the whole news media is very much, you know, speculating about what will happen in the future with the coronavirus. You know, is it, will it have repercussions? Will it come back? Will it go away forever? And this is happening right now, you know, when we speculate about the future of the coronavirus, what it is at this very moment is imagination or speculation, is thinking. We're thinking about the future, imagining, you can imagine the worst scenarios or that it's all going to disappear and everything will return to what we want it to be, uh, hopefully, uh, you know, that's an imagination, that's an, a, a wish. But the reality is we don't know. And so this not knowing is, is wisdom, you know, recognizing the future. Nobody knows the future. You know, it's, it's because it hasn't happened yet, so there's no memory of it. There's no, there's all we can, manages uh, imagination, possibilities, uh, positive or negative views about the future. So if you learn to trust your awareness, learning to trust this, and I emphasize this over and over again because it's the only thing we can trust in this realm that we're experiencing through this form, the physical body, the samsara, what the, is the you know the the mental states, the emotions, the thoughts, the memories, the institutions, the governments, uh, nationalism, fascism, whatever are conditions that we create in the present moment, and we have you know we have memories of the past, or we have expectations or dreads about the future. And what is it that knows this? What is it that can know the reality of the here and now is 
awareness, mindfulness, or consciousness. And that's what we're experiencing here and now. It's not about being mindful or aware tomorrow or in the future, it's because awareness is, is right now. It's, it's with us, whatever we're doing, whether how deluded we might be or how wise we might be, awareness is, is our natural state. So learning to trust this, then you, you inform yourself with, with reality, with the way things are, rather than trying to find out, go to fortune tellers or psychics and, or the zodiacs or the, the different uh, possibilities, predictions for the future. Because the reality of the future at this moment for every single human being on planet Earth is we don't know. It's infinite possibility, potential, probability, but it's uncertain. So this uncertainty, not knowing, is, is knowing the reality of this moment. And this is where liberation takes place. In terms of training oneself, how does one practice developing perspective on thinking like that, on speculating about the future? Well, it's, it's like the, you, you're aware that you're imagining the future. You know, if you, if you pay attention to your thinking, you know, uh, because the future is all thinking, you know, so it's, it's very obvious that you're aware when you're thinking of tomorrow, next year, 2021, uh, what will happen with the coronavirus and so on. You, you know you're thinking. So this is knowing. Thinking is like this. Whatever you're thinking, whether it's reasonable or nonsensical or positive or negative, it's still thinking. Thinking is, is a condition that arises and ceases in the present. And the Dhamma is, is timeless. It has, it's not about time about Dhamma in the future, Dhamma of the past. Dhamma is here and now. And, uh, and we, you know, when we reflect on the, the, the characteristics of Dhamma, is apparent here and now, timeless. Well, timelessness is always here and now. It's not timeless tomorrow, it's about the way it is at this very moment that we're thinking about the future. So this is where trusting your awareness of, you know, as you just not to criticize, and I'm not saying you shouldn't think about the future, but to awaken to the reality of what is absolutely real and certain at this moment is that each one of us is experiencing consciousness. This is the experience of here and now at this, uh, you know, wherever you might be. And as you keep Reminding yourself, like reflecting on the past. What is yesterday, right now, as I'm sitting here? Uh, you know, what is yesterday? And it's a memory. So I remember, you know, things that happened yesterday or last year or 10 years ago. It's all memory, whether it's 
just a, an hour ago or the present moment. So the past is a memory, the future is the unknown, now is the knowing. And this is like investigating this to, to really, not just to believe what I'm saying, it's not a matter of, of believing these, these teachings, but they're all investigatory teachings. They're teachings that are pointing to the present reality of here and now. And when the thinking and the worrying sort of becomes obsessive, it's kind of difficult sometimes to step back from that. It's either a very strong mental habit or we're so caught up in it that we don't see ourselves doing that. How can we help ourselves in situations like that? Well, it's this continuous reminding here and now, being aware and like worry. <clears throat> The future is always a problem, you know. It's always something to worry about because we don't know what will happen. We don't know how long we're going to live or have good health or how long the coronavirus will last or how long we'll be locked up in our houses. You know, the, <laughs> this is, and, the, and then the worry about getting the disease. You know, this is, this is all about thinking. And so it's like, really observe when you're worried to, to make it, to really deliberately think the worry and be the knower of it, to be aware that I'm worried about the future is like this. And as you become aware of thinking, at first you, you, you believe that reality lies in the, in the conditions that I, this physical body, this person here, am worried about the future. We think this is our reality, that this is, I'm a real, I'm the physical body, I'm this personality, um, and this is, this is reality. But as we begin to observe thought, when we intentionally think and observe thinking, you, you realize thinking arises and ceases. And as you observe a thought, just the thought, I am worried, just the thought, I, as you think, I, it ceases immediately. And what is left is awareness. It's empty. Awareness is empty, but it's, it's alive too. It's not, it's not empty like dead matter, but it's, it's still consciousness doesn't arise and cease along with words. Words arise and cease in consciousness. And so I am, and the spaces between I and am, am and worried, are not recognized. And we think they're empty, meaningless, uh, without any real importance. So we ignore them. But as we trust in awareness, we began to awaken to the reality of, of the, the, the pure consciousness that is always present here and now. With the words that we're thinking and the spaces between the words, at the beginning of the sentence, at the end of the sentence, there's always awareness, there's always consciousness. It doesn't arise and cease, it isn't a mood or dependent upon conditions supporting it. 
It is the unconditioned reality that we're awakening to and recognizing that what we identify with is empty phenomena. Like, whether you like it or not, your body is a is a phenomenon, it's empty, it has no, you know, it is not a real person, it's a, it's a food body, you have to keep putting food into it to keep it going. And, and this is the form that we identify with, with a, with a body that, that, you know, has to rest, has to eat, has to sleep, has to perform the bodily functions, we have to urinate, defecate, and we identify with all this as our reality, when in, when in actuality it in, is called empty phenomena. It's, it's conditions, it's sankharas that begin and end, arise and cease. The same with your thoughts, with your memories, with your moods, with your perceptions, uh, with what you see, hear, smell, taste, touch, with all thoughts, moods, you know, whatever they might be, happy, sad, depressed, elated, they are empty phenomena. And you, you, that which is aware of emptiness, aware of the presence and absence of phenomena, and is, is continuous, it has no beginning and end. So you begin to you realize you're awakening to your true nature, which is the deathless reality of Dhamma, or pure conscious, consciousness that isn't dependent upon senses uh, and, the, and the condition of those senses. So just to make this clear, in the exercise you're suggesting about thinking intentionally, is that to help ourselves notice thinking? Because usually there's a whole bunch of thinking that goes on unintentionally. Yeah, to, to, exactly, to think intentionally, you know, usually you're trying to stop thinking. With a lot of meditation uh, techniques, it's all try, trying to th focus on one mantra or one object in order to stop the wandering mind, the thinking mind, the restless mind that, that thinks, 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 thinks. And so, you know, in my own experience, you know, I was always trying to, to resist thinking, trying to, to get rid of it, trying to control it, uh, trying to annihilate it, because, because I could see it was, you know, as long as I get caught in my thinking habits, I become obsessed, I become overwhelmed with, with regrets from the past or worries about the future or you know, I can feel, I can feel angry about events that happened to me when I was 10 years old. In here I'm 86 years old. I can, I can feel greedy and lustful just by thinking and imagining and fantasizing in, in the present moment. And so I have to believe in my thoughts, in my memories, in my perceptions, I have to believe they are real and that they're really mine. But when we intentionally think, then it's not, it's not, uh, you know, you don't have to think anything personal. Uh, for example, I would just take, I am a human being, something banal and ordinary, 
and that doesn't arouse any great emotion in me, and it's not controversial, you know, it's, it's a conditioned perception of our reality, and, but the intention is to consciously observe and value the spaces between the words. And as you do that, you know, you begin, you can play with it, you can, uh, you know, enjoy it just by intentionally thinking. When you're always resisting, trying to control thinking, trying to deny it, get rid of it, then it becomes more of a problem. You create karmic connections uh, because what you're doing is is vipavadana, the desire to control or get rid of and resist. And so it doesn't get you anywhere except oftentimes more confused. And and then you hold to one thought like a mantra, it will it's a it's a good exercise in a kind of mental exercise, but it's still, you know, holding to a condition, a mantra or a perception that you're clinging to, you know, concentrated on absorbing into in the present moment where intentional thinking isn't, you know, about control, but observing. You take the position of Kuto, or the knowing, the Buddha, the name of the Buddha, not as a mantra to, to tranquilize consciousness, tranquilize awareness, but to recognize that, that just thinking itself is a habit. You know, it, you're not born thinking. Like, a, you learn how to think as you grow up. You know, you, you're not born with, with memories and thoughts uh, of the past or worries about the future. You acquire that thinking habit after you're born. But a newborn baby is fully, operatively conscious that he is not created by someone else or by conditions and he's not taught that as some kind of cultural identity. It's natural, it's tamachad, it's, it's dhamma, it's the reality of here and now. Consciousness is here and now, it's not something that happens when you're born uh, and when you die you, you're no longer conscious. It's the consciousness is deathless. It's the deathless reality of here, here and now. And as we explore thinking, we become, we know, begin to notice and value the spaces between the words before we even think. The spaces between each word and the emptiness, the space that's after we think the word, I am human being, there's still consciousness. And you make, you know, your interest is in the awareness, uh, conscious awareness, when you're not thinking. And so, just trying to stop thinking doesn't work, but when you deliberately think, you know, your intention is no longer interested in the content of the sentence, but in the, in the space the conscious that that they said that the sentence arises and ceases in. Thank you. There's another question uh, regarding the formulation of the first noble truth. Someone was asking, 
Did the Buddha say that life is suffering, or did he say that there is suffering in life? The Buddha just, you know, in the first noble truth, his first sermon, he said there is suffering. He's just pointing to a reality, to something we all can relate to. It's not a like a doctrinal belief, uh, you know, where you have to believe in, you know, most religions emphasize you have to believe in, in God, and and so, you know, some people can believe in God, some people can't believe in God, and but you can't prove God here and now as, as a kind of ordinary experience for most people, but you can be aware of suffering here and now. So you you begin to, it's, it's the wrong attitude that Buddha said everything is, that uh, life is suffering. He said there is, it's a statement about the way things are, there is suffering. <clears throat> so it's not about looking at suffering as, as, uh, as an object of what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch. It's observing the, the feeling of worry about the future, or guilt, or regret about the past. It's it's uh, seeing the attachment to nostalgia, like wanting things to return to what we remember before the coronavirus. You know, that's a memory now. And if we cling to that, wanting the present moment to, to return to a a memory of the past, you know, that's impossible, because the memory of the past is is empty, it arises and ceases very quickly. Try to hold and perpetuate a memory of the past and see how permanent and trustworthy it is, you know, and even the best memories or the worst memories arise and cease in the present. So, what was it? Uh, Pertaining to suffering. Suffering is is, you know, it's something that you can observe, it's banal, it's, it's an ordinary human experience that all human beings can relate to. You don't believe in, in suffering, you don't, that's ridiculous to, to believe that everything's suffering is very depressing. But to recognize suffering, there is suffering, it should be understood. So the advice of the Buddha is to understand suffering, not to get rid of it or blame it on somebody else or or just get depressed by clinging to the perception of everything's miserable and suffering, but observing, turning inward, looking at the sense of fear or worry about the future, regret about the past, is like this. And that which is aware of suffering, that's understanding suffering. You're, you're not, you're not looking for a definition in a dictionary, you know, to find out what uh, the Oxford Dictionary says about and defines suffering, but you're looking at the reality of worry is suffering. Uh, wanting something you don't have is suffering. Not wanting what you have is suffering. And so, you know, you're observing suffering, that which is a, the awareness of suffering. That awareness isn't never suffers. Awareness doesn't a begin and end doesn't arise and cease. So it's it's not they can't count suffer. So that's why 
it, liberation is through awareness, not through annihilating suffering. There's another question that is more about the cosmological aspect of uh, Buddhism. There is a belief in some of the Asian Buddhist cultures that at one point during their year the doors to hell open and it's an opportunity to make merit, to dedicate to any relatives of us that might be suffering in hell realms. But then people worry whether these days that the gates to hell open, whether demons and ghosts escape and roam the earth for three, four days before the gates close again. Can you address that, please? Well, that's a belief, you know, it's not Dhamma. And, uh, you know, it's a belief that can be useful, you know, in the sense of getting people to, to be generous and thoughtful, keeping the sila, and and offering you know the the merit gain from good actions and good speech, right actions, right speech for the benefit of all sentient beings. That can be a skillful, you know, you can use it skillfully, or you can just believe in it stupidly, and believe that the gates of hell actually there's hell with gates on it and spirit and miserable spirits inside those gates who might be our relatives. I mean, you can believe that, but you can't prove that. There's no proof here and now, at this very moment, that there's hell, or there are even gates of hell, or that there are any uh, miserable spirits in hell. You know, we might believe that there is, that there are, but <laughs> that's a belief that you create, you know, it's not it's not dumb, it's not reality here and now. Uh, another question was just about something you spoke about last time. Uh, you were talking about universal consciousness in contrast to identifying with the body and thinking that consciousness is in the body. Some people have asked whether there is this kind of ethereal cloud of universal consciousness out there, and almost like there's a sense that we have to unplug from our personal consciousness, which is a delusion, and plug into this other sense of wider universal consciousness out there. Could you help clear up that confusion, please? Well, like, what we identify as personal con consciousness is through what we see hear, smell, taste, touch, and think. So, <clears throat> our personal consciousness is very ephemeral, very untrustworthy. You know, what we identify consciousness as being bound to the senses, which are themselves very impermanent. Like, all of us who are aging, you know, our vision is declining, we have to wear hearing aids in order to hear properly, your senses, you know, your senses are degenerating. <clears throat> so if consciousness depends on senses, then, you know, it's, then that's taking it personally. That's, that, but that's not the way it really is, because consciousness is not personal. You know, it's not like it's contained within my physical body, my consciousness, that, that I 
and living with and experiencing is is contained within the limited form of a food body that has to urinate and defecate every day. <laughs> and where does it abide? You know, is it in the brain? And and when people, you know, have brain damage, you know, their their consciousness is damaged, uh, or you know, we we can see it always in these very limited forms of consciousness as some kind of ethereal image of some kind of force around us out, out there in space and it's unlimited. You, that's imagination, isn't it? You imagine it as, as a, an unlimited force and some kind of mystical experience that, that is in the universe. That's still imagery, that's still thinking. But what is consciousness here and now is, this is awareness, you're aware of images you create, of beliefs you, you, you're, con you're conditioned with, with, with fear, with worry, with guilt, with regret, with, with anxiety, with a sense of self-view that, that, you know, it is depressing, it is suffering to see oneself always in such limited conditions as the body, the, the feelings we have, the, the senses that we experience, you know, that are all untrustworthy. And, you know, how can you make yourself feel permanently happy through an act of will? Or, you know, how can you, you make yourself not worry just through trying to suppress it or resist it? How can you uh, get rid of fear just by positive thinking all the time? How long can you sustain uh, positive thinking? Or is it through awareness that that is consciousness itself? Is that consciousness is in in the scriptures, poly, poly scriptures in the poly canon, they have, you know, they make two references and the, these the, the, to this state of the vinyanang anidasnang nanantang sapadokabang consciousness invisible, infinite and uh, blissful all around or being all around being and bliss are really the same thing so it's, this is not these this is not given very much importance in the Theravada teachings because we're, we're usually uh, connecting consciousness to seeing consciousness, hearing consciousness, smelling consciousness, tasting consciousness. And so consciousness is always bound to the senses. But if you, you know, you realize that you're not limited by your senses, you're not the senses. The senses are impermanent, they're, they're, they're sankharas, they arise and cease according to conditions. And, and that's what we're experiencing is sensory, sensory uh, or the sensory form of our physical body and its sensory experiences. But what is aware of experience, what is aware of senses, what is aware of suffering as we uh, begin to notice it in the present, as we aware of thought, 
of seeing, of, of hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. That awareness isn't, isn't a sankara. That's anidasanang vinyanang, vinyanang anidasanang anantang sapadopabam. That means perfect, deathless, complete, perfect, aware consciousness that doesn't arise and cease, that, has, that we call the amatta dhamma, the deathless reality, that what, that's what we really are. We're not what we think we are or believe we are or have been conditioned to, to believe that we are these limited forms the, the physical body, the, the memories we have, the, the fears, the desires, the greed, the anger, the resentments that arise and cease in consciousness. But we're awakening to consciousness, to being aware of consciousness knowing itself. It's aware, awareness of being aware of itself. And that's what mindfulness is, taken to its, its potential of liberation, its awareness, aware of itself, that we find liberation and absence of suffering. So this is an important question because, you know, being Theravada monk for all these years, one, you know, has investigated these teachings forwards and backwards and sidewards and everything, just to apply it to the reality of experience here and now. You know, so it's not just becoming a Theravadan monk and, and going along with what, how you interpret Theravada Pali teachings according to the way your mind has been conditioned, like my cultural background. Um, my cultural conditioning is based on being like white middle-class American Christian. So that's my whole thinking habit patterns were formed by those perceptions of, of the American white middle-class culture of my generation and the, and the uh, Christian, Jewish Christian religion that was very much differently programmed into me. So when I first encountered Buddhism, you know, I didn't understand anything. I had an intuitive uh, appreciation for it. When I first encountered Zen Buddhism uh, in the 1950s, you know, I kind of, it awakened me in an in a intuitive way. But I, intellectually, I couldn't tell you what it was about. If you, you know, if you ask me what Zen Buddhism is about then, I wouldn't, able to say anything, I don't know, but I, this sense of intuition or, or uh, apperception, apprehension, intuitive apprehension is, is uh, you know, what is coming not from the intellect anymore, from the thinking mind, but from the reality that we are. So even though I'm conditioned, culturally conditioned, religiously conditioned in a certain way, that tends to have an influence on how I read the scriptures. So I remember reading the Majjhima Nikaya before I ever ordained or started meditation. And of course, my whole tendency was to try to, you know, was influenced by Christian mysticism, by Christianity, 
and and American middle class, white middle class values. You know, so, you know, I didn't really understand Majima Nikaya very well. I, you know, I appreciated the, you know, because it was Buddhist and it's supposed to be a wise text, but I hadn't meditated, I hadn't really contemplated the teachings, I was just interpreting them from an already biased conditioned viewpoint. And uh, and then ordaining, living in Thailand the first 10 years and meditating with Lumpur Cha, you know, he's always pointing to the reality of here and now. And then I began to see, you know, break through the the limitation of white middle class American conditioning and Christian conditioning to trusting in the apperception of the ability, intuitive awareness, which is is not conditioned by culture or religion, which is apparent here and now. So that's the insight we get through through meditation, through reflecting on the Four Noble Truths, there are th the three aspects of each Noble Truth, the 18 insights of an, of an Arahant. Thank you very much, Lupo.